1: Five,
2: four, three, two, This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome! Hello, and welcome to Oral Delight Show One Hundred and Twelve. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have part two of Larry Santuru's Lord Dickens Declaration coming today. Do hope you'll listen out for that. I'll give you a little heads up what else is coming in today's show. We have a poem by Lynn C.A. Gardner. We have fact article by Mark Bowman. This is the announcement of who is in for the final of the Sofa Note Awards. We have Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at SF history. Then we jump into the main fiction and Larry's give a little introduction to what's went before in part one. Then we jump straight into part two of Lord Dickens' Declaration. Then we have Spider Robinson giving a little update on his good wife Jeannie Robinson and her battle with cancer. So please, today's show again is all about raising funds. So if you haven't done it, why not ask yourself why haven't you done it? Let's jump straight into the editorial. The <laughs> editorial. And yes, as like I just said there in the introduction, this today's show again is all about trying to raise some money for the Robinsons. And if you haven't been over to the site, please pop over, come over to StarshipsOver.com and leave a donation there. There is multiple choices for you there. I mean, you're getting a thing for free. You know, what else can we do? We want your money. This is it's plain and as simple as that. Let's raise some funds for the Robinsons. You know, you know, last year you all voted for Spider to win one of the categories there. You know, do the right thing. Ask yourselves, can I spare £2.99 this Christmas? I'm sure, I am sure you can. So please pop over to the site. Like I say, it's in multiple formats. Starts off at £2.99 and goes all the way up to 100 We've had some lovely donations. Everything is going on track to, you know, actually brighten their Christmas a little bit. So, and I'll tell you what the final figure is we've reached, you know, after December and then I'll kind of send it over to Spider. I've got a little introduction or a little article by Spider just to get a little heads up how Genie's doing, you know. This is what we're doing it for. So please, please, please come over to Starship. So if you haven't donated, come over and just give £2.99. That's it. You get to see all the hard work that Larry's done. You get to see all the hard work that Skeet's done. You know, it's about helping someone who's going through a crappy time at the minute. So please come over to Starships over and donate to the Robinson Fund. That would mean so much to me. It would mean so much, like I say, to Larry and Ski, to know that it hasn't been in vain. Please, please, please. Let's kick off with a little bit of poetry.
3: Safe in their cryogenic chambers by Lynn C.A. Gardner with apologies to Emily Dickinson, recited by Diane Severson. Safe in their cryogenic chambers, frozen past pain on a hopeful noon, the dreamers await their resurrection, veins of snow in titanium tomb. Bobbing along on the crest of eons, castaways dying but never dead, slumber chased stasis through time's tumult, ageless, Figments of life in a drowsing head. Worlds wheel unwaking, their life eternal. Asteroids crash, and suns decline. Voyagers drift, indestructible, timeless. Minuscule ships on a quest divine. Safe in their cryogenic chambers first appeared in Raven Electric. Tales of Fantasy Science Fiction, Horror and Mystery, March 2007.
2: Thank you, Lynn, and thank you, Diane Severson. Diane has taken up the challenge to be one of the transcribers over there on Starship Sover. If you want to transcribe one of the old shows that myself and Kieran put together, oh, many, many years ago, drop us an email, Starship Sover, and join the club. There is a book coming out. Don't know when, but there's a few transcribers, about eight now, transcribing shows. So if you want to get involved in that, And actually get a page in the book and get all things of yourself put in the book. Please, come over. So thank you, Diane. And with a little baby in two as well. What a star, Diane. Next up, we have the Sofenaut Awards.
0: The final round is now upon us. Mark, who has scraped through. Hello, fellow Starship Sofen listeners. It's Mark Borman here again, ready to announce with great pleasure and delight the... Sophanaud Awards twenty ten shortlist finalists Here we go Coming to you in alphabetical order the shortlist for Best Main Fiction We have Exhalation by Ted Chiang The Emperor of Ice Cream by Jeffrey Ford Mars A Traveller's Guide by Ruth Nesvold, Lester Young and the Jupiter's Moons by Gord Seller and Child of an Ancient City by Tad Williams. In the category of Best Flash and Short Fiction, we have Two Dreams on Trains by Elizabeth Baer, Jesus and the Cowboys by Jay Lake, Bob the Dinosaur Goes to Disneyland by Joe R. Lansdale, Then Just a Dream by Lawrence Santoro, and Hard Rain by Matthew Sanborn Smith. In the short list for Best Poetry or Song Contributor, we have Michael Bishop, Neil Gaiman, Fred Heimbaugh, Norm Sherman and Laura Winter. Up next in the Best Narrator category, we have Mike Boris, Jim Campanella, Lawrence Santoro, Amy H. Sturgis, and Spider Robinson. Moving on to the Best Fact Article contributor, we have Jim Campanella and his Science News, Matthew Sanborn-Smith and the Fiction Crawler, Lawrence Santoro with his Progress Reports, Amy H. Sturgis, and Damien G. Walter with his Support Our Zines article. In our final category of Best Artwork, we have the cover art for March 09 by Skeet, the cover art by Ali for August 09, the artwork done for the story The Reflection of Memory" by Alexandra Barasheva, artwork by Skeet for November 09, and finally, the artwork for Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 1 by Skeet. You'll be able to find links to the best artwork nominees on the finalist poll, as well as in the thread on the Starship Sofa forums for this episode. So, there's the Sofanaut Awards 2010 finalists. You can vote for your favourite finalists at sofanauts 2010questionprocom Unlike the nomination round, you can only vote once in each category, so spend those votes wisely. The finalist poll will be open for three weeks, so there's plenty of time for you to catch up on any stories you may have missed or would like to revisit. Winners of the 2010 Sophonaut Awards will be announced in the new year. Stay tuned. We'll be adding an additional category when we announce the Sophonaut Award winners, this Lifetime Achievement Award will recognise services to Starship Sofa. This award will be selected by none other than Tony C. Smith. Before I sign off, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to everyone who voted in the SofaNord Awards nomination round. Once again, you can vote in the finalist round at Sofanauts 2010questionprocom That's all from me. Thank you for taking part in the 2010 SofaNord Awards. There you go, Mark, thank you so much for sorting all that out. Well,
2: well, 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 who will it be? Like Mark says, you've got three weeks to vote. So, again, come over to Starship's Over. There is a link there on the site. Next up is our good friend, Amy H. Sturgis. Amy.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am back with another look into the history of the science fiction and fantasy genre. Today, I'd like to focus on one of the great heroes, or perhaps better put, anti-heroes of science fiction, one of the great protagonists of science fiction, certainly one of the first proto-steampunk protagonists, and one of my all-around favorite fictional characters of all time, Captain Nemo. Now, Captain Nemo was the creation of Jules Verne, although he's gone on to be interpreted, reinterpreted, reimagined by a number of other authors and artists uh, in subsequent years. He was first introduced to readers in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1870, and he also featured in The Mysterious Island in 1874. There are a number of reasons why Captain Nemo is just so cool that we have to keep bringing him back and invoking him again and again in popular culture. For one thing, he is a classic Byronic anti-hero. You may recall that one of Lord Byron's lovers described him as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. That certainly applies to Captain Nemo. He's dark and brooding and driven by thoughts of revenge. He shuts himself up in his room and plays the organ really sadly and cries. He's sort of an early emo boy. And yet he can also take on a giant squid single-handedly, an action hero. And he is a scientific genius. He is the engineer who designed, the builder who created, and the captain who leads the Nautilus, a cutting-edge submarine that the world mistakes for a giant monster, Verne describes it as a masterpiece containing masterpieces. It is powered by electricity, provided by batteries that are mercury and sodium, and the sodium comes from seawater. It is virtually indestructible and certainly deadly to other craft. But perhaps the most fascinating thing about Captain Nemo is the mystery surrounding him. Nemo is Latin for no one and Greek for, I give what is due. It's clearly not his real name, but rather a way to disguise his identity. And we only get glimpses, bits and pieces, of his backstory. We first meet him, as I pointed out before, in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, through the perspective of Professor Aranax, who was saved by Nemo. After being thrown overboard from his own vessel, which, in fact, was sent to hunt the large underwater sea creature, for which everyone had mistaken the Nautilus. The narrator, Professor Aranax, and his two companions become essentially the prisoners of Nemo because they have discovered the truth about the Nautilus and Nemo's activities underwater. Aranax is alternately frightened by and resentful of Nemo, and yet he can't help but admire the man. For one thing, Nemo has almost single-handedly created the Nautilus and the lifestyle that he pursues in it, which requires him never to go on land, but utilizes the bounty of the sea for everything from fuel to food. He's also created an art gallery and a remarkable library by which he feeds his soul. He's obviously a learned and intelligent man. In fact, It's quickly apparent that he speaks French, English, Latin, German, and another language which Professor Aronnax cannot identify. Over time, Nemo leaves clues as to why he is such a misanthrope, why he has denied himself uh, human companionship, and in fact turned his back on the human community altogether. For example, we see him criticize the hunting of whales almost to the point of extinction. He kills to eat, he kills in self-defense, and humans he kills for revenge, but he has a very clear system of ethics that he follows in terms of what should or should not be hunted and why. There's a very telling exchange between Aranax and Captain Nemo in Chapter 10. Aranax asks him, you like the sea captain? And Nemo responds, yes, I love it. The sea is everything. It covers seven-tenths of the terrestrial globe. Its breath is pure and healthy. It is an immense desert where man is never lonely, for he feels life stirring on all sides. The sea is only the embodiment of a supernatural and wonderful existence. It is nothing but love and emotion. It is the living infinite, as one of your poets has said. In fact, Professor, nature manifests herself in it by her three kingdoms, mineral, vegetable, and animal. The sea is the vast reservoir of nature. The globe began with the sea, so to speak, and who knows if it will not end with it. In it is supreme tranquility. The sea does not belong to despots. Upon its surface, men can still exercise unjust laws, fight, tear one another to pieces, and be carried away with terrestrial horrors. But at 30 feet below its level, their reign ceases, their influence is quenched, and their power disappears. Ah, sir, live, live in the bosom of the waters. There only is independence. There I recognize no masters. There I am free. It's clear from this, with the discussion of injustice and despotism, that Nemo is a tortured soul with a past, It becomes even clearer when he sinks a ship and kills all on board in an act of retribution. Interestingly enough, in the first draft of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne styled Nemo as a Polish noble who was vengeful because his family, his wife and children and parents, had been killed during the Russian repression of the Polish insurrection of 1863 and 1864. Pierre Jules Hetzel, who was Jules Verne's Editor at the time asked him to change this. He said, We want to sell books in Russia, not get your book banned. So Verne left this as a big mystery as to exactly what terrible injustice he had experienced and why the need for freedom drove Nemo literally under the water. But later in The Mysterious Island, we find out more. In 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Nemo admits to writing his autobiography, and he says that the last person alive on the Nautilus will put it in a sealed casket and throw it overboard and hope that it was washed up for someone to read for posterity to know his story. Well, this unsinkable box actually washes up on the mysterious island, where five People and a dog have been stranded after escaping in a balloon from Civil War-era Richmond, Virginia, which was under siege. Incidentally, the mysterious island was the main text that inspired the television series Lost. Anyway, these castaways are, unbeknownst to them, being helped in their survival by Captain Nemo. Eventually, before his apparent death, they meet the man who has kept them alive, and he recounts his story. As it turns out, Nemo's real name is Prince Dakar. He's the son of a rajah and the descendant of a sultan, a Muslim ruler, as a matter of fact. He lost his parents, his wife, and his children in the Sepoy Rebellion of 1857, which is also known as the Indian Rebellion, or India's first war of independence, fought against the British East India Company. So it becomes clear then why Nemo takes to the sea, why he fights injustice and particularly imperialism everywhere he can. In fact, there is a sort of Robin Hood quality to him because he liberates gold bullion from shipwrecks at the bottom of the ocean, many of which are found in places that really only the Nautilus could go. And it turns out that he uses those funds to back some rebellions in different places across the globe. He bankrolls freedom fighters, in other words. According to the mysterious island, he dies there of old age. However, fans of the character and his remarkable scientific prowess and courage and tortured fight against tyranny suggest that perhaps he faked his own death in order to get himself one step closer to the freedom he so longed for. It would be hard to overstate the importance of Nemo in popular culture. There have been a number of film adaptations of Verne's works, And in those, Nemo has been portrayed by everyone from Lionel Barrymore in 1929 to James Mason in 1954, Jose Ferrer in 1978, Michael Caine in 1997, Patrick Stewart in 2005. In 2011, McG's upcoming film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Captain Nemo, will have Sam Worthington portraying Captain Nemo. Perhaps the actor closest to Verne's own imagining of the character was Omar Sharif, who played Captain Nemo in 1973 in a version of The Mysterious Island. In terms of literature, both novels and comics, he's pretty much ubiquitous. He was a character in Alan Moore's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He appeared in... Philip Jose Farmer's novel The Other Log of Phileas Fogg is the main character of K.J. Anderson's Captain Nemo, The Fantastic History of a Dark Genius. also appeared in William Mark Simmons' Dead Easy, Clive Cussler's Valhalla Rising, and James A. Owen's Here There Be Dragons. Captain Nemo is also a major character in the anime series Nadia, The Secret of Blue Water, and the manga series Captain Nemo. He was the villain in the Mighty Max episode Around the World in 80 Arms, which was, of course, a play on the Jules Verne title Around the World in 80 Days. And his descendant was the villain in a Josie and the Pussycats episode. He's also been the focus of a number of musical tributes. The Michael Schinker Group released a song called Captain Nemo, as did The Dive, Sarah Brightman, and Ace of Bass. Graham Bezotis released the song Finding Captain Nemo while Audio Root did Hey, Captain Nemo. And perhaps my favorite, the ever science fiction friendly Paul Rowland in his 2008 album Nevermore included the songs Captain Nemo, Last Voyage of the Nautilus, and Wreck of the Nautilus. You can get a sense of it from these lyrics from Captain Nemo. Captain Nemo stands the wheel under his hands and issues the command, full steam ahead. Gentlemen, he says, as if taking to the stage, may I present the wonder of the age. And I think that sums it up, actually. Wonder is one of the main emotions that Captain Nemo evokes when it's described in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea how he ingeniously reaches, finds, and claims Antarctica which he agrees to walk upon because it's never been touched before by human feet, and which he claims with a flag that's black, with a large gold in for Nemo. It's really a remarkable, awe-inspiring moment, as is when he takes Professor Aranax walking on the sunken continent of Atlantis. The idea that Nemo was out there somewhere divorced from the laws that govern humanity, following his own path, using his ingenious scientific abilities to draw and sustain life from the sea and visit places no other human has ever gone, it's a powerful idea. And as we think of him mourning his lost family and declaring vengeance against tyranny and despotism and the forces of oppression, Whatever form they take. Can't help but think that Nemo is still very relevant today. And so I will end my tribute to this character, this man with the body of a fighter, the heart of a poet, and the mind of a great scientific genius. Explorer, adventurer, inventor, and lost soul. I'll leave you with one of my favorite quotes from The Mysterious Island. After the castaways have learned about Captain Nemo's background, the great and terrible things he has done, he asks, "'What think you of my life, gentlemen?' And the leader of the group, Cyrus Harding, replies as follows, "'Sir, your error was in supposing that the past can be resuscitated and in contending against inevitable progress. It is one of those errors which some admire, others blame, which God alone can judge.' He who is mistaken in an action which he sincerely believes to be right may be an enemy, but retains our esteem. Your error is one that we may admire, and your name has nothing to fear from the judgment of history which does not condemn heroic folly, but its results. I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back at the science fiction and fantasy genre and its remarkable history.
2: There you go. Will Amy H. Sturgis win one of the coveted awards? Who can tell? So next up is Lord Dickens Declaration Part 2. And Larry's just put together a little kind of what's went before just to give you bring you back up to speed on what you know this story. So Lawrence him <laughs> his proper you know proper name there, Not Larry's Lawrence today. Lawrence, sir, uh, what's going on? <laughs>
4: Previously on Lord Dickens' Declaration. Long ago, and somewhere in the world, a group of Neanderthals sleep through a winter's night. One awakens, aware suddenly that something new, something not ever, has come into the depths of his cave. Taking a burning branch from the communal fire, he goes to investigate, followed by several others of the clan. 50,000 years later, lesser master Gerald Philby, instructor of literary history at King's University, drops unceremoniously into the present after a brief time slip to 1839. Philby's present is the year 1902, year of the autarch Lord Jesus Josephson. What has made time travel possible is the beast, a vast computer, still a building upon Salisbury Plain. Philby has time-slipped without the full-body protective skin that shields the past from disaccommodation by time-delving academics. Worse, he has stolen this ride. He has gone without permission. To prove a point he had made in his master's thesis, that sometimes author, full-time politician, Charles Dickens' proposal of marriage to the Queen had more than love at its roots. The suggestion that he make the trip unskinned and untethered, so to more fully appreciate the experience, uh, the moment of Dickens' declaration, had been planted by a fellow literary historian, the beautiful, devious, sensual, awful Master Mary Mariah. Philby is brought before his superior, Master Master Hillier, the chair of the College of Literary History, the prime school of the university. At Hillier's side is Master Mary Mariah. As the three enter the cafe at King's to discuss the matter, Philby notices that something is amiss. Eventually, he dismisses the thought as mere befuddlement from his unskinned trip. Philby is taken to London by airship to appear before a committee of the Commons to answer for his serious breach of academic discipline. On the way, the party encounters Edgar Allan Poe, the beloved long-time president of the western continent of Brendonia. In the Commons, Philby is unable to convince the members that his trip was justified, and he is reduced from lesser master to a pilchard a mere aid to the time-traveling masters of kings, masters such as Mary Mariah. Depressed, sulking, and unable to book return passage to kings, Philby wanders the streets of London. Nightfall finds him near the docks. He hopes, and does not hope, that someone, thief, killer, someone, will relieve him of his burdensome life. Followed by a shadow, however, Philby realizes he's not quite ready to shuffle off the coil and tries to reach the safety of a pub. What overtakes him, though, is not a murderous footpad, but Master Mary Mariah. As they talk, a sudden disruption in the night suggests that something has passed over or under them. Mariah is unsurprised by the moment. To Philby... It is increasingly clear that something about the world he's known is different and the times they are changing and now part 2 of lord dickens's declaration Lord Dickens' Declaration by Lawrence Santoro Part 2 To translate roughly from the speech of Dryden's era, If, at any given moment, the sight, disposition, velocity, and direction is known of every particle in this our universe, why, then, may we know, with clear and certain path, where all will lead in the instant next? And mark you— as the precept above obtains, why then might we not know from whence everything has proceeded, the moment ere, and the moment ere that, and on and on, to the infinite? Dryden was pleased with his notion. Keep thinking on it, old man Jack, Mr. Pope said in his moment, and it may occur to you all that might portend therefrom— What portended was that, with sufficient cogs, gears, and cams, the exact number of which had not yet been computed, one might not only know where a thing had been a moment or two before, but also one might be able to return it to that place. It was simply a matter of time and will before Alex Pope's sly suggestion to Dryden was actually achievable.' It was an aged engine coughed them through the countryside. The iron rail on which they swayed had a tenuous hug upon the contours of the land. The distillate breath of the machine clouded the world entirely. That, of course, may have been Philby's ill-humour. As Hilliard had said, the bridges were a fright, even at a crawl, crossing stream, valley, or defile. The click-clack rocking of the rail beneath them, the wooden squeak and groan of the rot-black trestles, and the consequent sway of the carriages upon their springs, put Philby's grip upon his seat to the test. Master, Master Hilyar sat belted tightly and sipped his doro. Master Mary Mariah, by contrast, stood by the curving forward window, "'Straight, holding to nothing, she swayed with the rhythm of their carriage "'as the world rushed toward and round them. "'Rain in meaty drops struck the observers' domes, "'and the beads flowed back from pane to pane over the low steel mullions. "'Even in the gloom she wore her blue lenses, "'and her eyes were a dark and distant country. "'Lovely,' she said. Soon they had crossed the River Avon, Stratford Dam in the grey distance. In the river, below the bridges, students waved, boating even in the wet, men fishing shook fists at them, and upon the sodden bank, trysting lovers ignored them with their buttocks. "'They tussle so near the iron, Master Mariah said, barely turning her head. "'Even in the rain, oh, lovely twin-backed beasts!' She leaned forward against the rail, the better to see. "'Lovely!' "'Lovely,' Philby thought. "'He did not need to see them now. "'Now he sulked. "'Mere Gerald did. "'Instructor Gerald. "'Gerald one knock above the punting students down below. Jerry the pilchard yet again sulked and stared at Mariah's bottom. "'And then the thought came to him. "'There points the bottom of a master. "'At me she points it. "'And then the realization. "'She is showing arse to me, is what.' Philby blinked it away. She, of the back-thrust bum, would still go a-voyaging to test her theses, try her notions against the irrefutable past, and back she'd come, bring brighter knowledge to shape the present, mold the future. And when Hylia dies—oh, when Hylia dies, he realized— she'll be master-mastered of literary history at King's, and I, oh, I, he, Philby, I will yet remain— He looked at his hands. Gerald, he'd remain Oh, A shit upon her, he thought. A vicious, wet, and foul odoured profusion of fatality be shot upon her. The word, enough, was all he called aloud, however. Hylia looked up, alarmed for a moment, then grunted back to reading. "'Philby,' she said without turning, attend. "'Aye,' he said, and rose.' He staggered to the forward window. The day had gone darker. They were within the outer rings now of the beast. Above and to the sides their iron-railed carriages passed beneath the open petals of the bright gathering sunflowers. "'Beautiful, yes,' she said. She craned her long neck to see the tops of the array. Her dark hair almost spilled but did not. "'Lovely,' he said. "'It was at least impressive.' nearly nine hundred kilometres square of silicon and steel, ring on ring of difference machines and their attendant collectors, and among them all the roads and ribbons of rivers, a few paths for foot and wheeled traffic and narrow corridors of the ancient iron rails upon which they now rode cut slender lanes among the housings. As they drove deeper into the sunflower forest, the shelters, enclosing the elder machines, grew larger, denser. Inside iron and brickwork trusses sat the great frames, the grinding, growling machines, opening and closing to birth the numbers. He had never been this close, he realized. Down here the beast itself was all around. Even... As a student he had airship to and fro to kings, then homeward. he thought of the beast as but a series of actions, yielding a set of results, probabilities that made time-slip possible, that and, well, all the other things of commerce and governance and, and, well, whatever it was that the beast provided. All those factors were born, in there, in those dark, dank sheds among the frames of black and rusting iron." As the carriage rolled, the shelters closed and the rail. Day grew darker as the petals of the old collectors gathered overhead. He imagined the crackle of lightning fluid, the hum and chatter, the flash of cogs and cams. Near, very near, the beast breathed now, the thing lived. Just there, he touched the curved glass. Why, if we stopped, he thought... We'd be in its guts. He'd have us, sure. A lovely sight, she said. He removed his hand from the glass. To you, he said. Somehow the word lovely angered him. He felt a tingle in his neck. To us, he said, not, I think, well, to them, he pointed. In the rain ahead, a group of five men, or... Men, perhaps, and women, too, all slipped and rubbered against the lightning fluid, not the rain, heaved equipment along a rutted, muddy path below the machines. They staggered in the muck, dwarves, they seemed, or smaller. They were less than that, insects among the things they tended. From the dry carriage, Philby and Mariah couldn't hear them. Of course, they couldn't, but Philby could imagine— In imagined memory he thought of people such as they. He imagined curses, shouts, good-humoured but sluggish, the dripping steel shaft they carted toward the open maw of one machine shelter were wrapped against the elements, buffered against the rough cart that carried it and the broken road that bore them all. Those shafts were finer made, and of more value than the men or women, their families, their present lives, and futures all combined— you see, to them the beast is that, it's a beast, and it's not theirs, no, it's ours. To them, is it lovely? <laughs> no. By then they were passed and headed on toward bright Sarum, and kings upon its crown. Who would have thought, she said, but yes, men must tend the thing. Well, it is their meat and leader. She turned to him. Is it possible that you, Gerald, you come from such? You called
5: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
4: May to attend, he said. She nodded. You will not believe me, Gerald, but I am sorry for your, uh... She let the beast and the rain flow by. Reduction, he prompted... "'She nodded. "'We haven't seen eye to eye, "'on many things have been at odds, so truly. "'I have noticed, truly,' he said, "'master,' he added. "'Honestly, Gerald, a few more years as a sub, "'with the beast itself, "'tinning yourself as others voyage, "'collecting, filing data, "'that will give you a different perspective. Laboring perhaps, among the mudmen there,' "'he cocked his head to the rear. "'His neck hair quivered again, "'but he could not not say it.' Then he said it. Lord Dickens did declare for Her Majesty's love just to break his contract with Chapman and Hall. He did. I I knew he did. I know it better. Now I've had my joy ride. Perhaps. I must say, Gerald, I've never particularly cared. She turned to him. About Master Dickens, his declaration, or, well, really, about any of it. Truly, she added unnecessarily. Truly. Her eyes, voice... The lilt of her head said the woman was serious. "'It's Virgin Liz, then, I suppose,' Philby muttered. She shrugged. "'Is it not a thing,' Philby thought, "'that an academic, a master, could force herself so to her own conceit? "'What is she to Elizabeth, or Elizabeth to she? "'How could she and care not a whit about—' Well, ab- ab- about Sir Charles, Lord Dickens, and he, so close, who changed our time itself, and, and had this been Philby of yesterday, of the week before, fiery Master Philby, he would have blustered and blown upon the subject. Now he simply stopped, stared. I have other matters of concern, Gerald, said Master Maria. It never noticed the throat of her voice when she spoke quietly. Enough! She leaned closer, her voice carried, barely above the engine's chug and suck. I have many other matters of interest, Master Philby, who once was, and Master Philby, who perhaps is yet to be, and I need no I shall require some assistance. And closer yet, she whispered, your assistance. Then, just a breath, will that be possible? Then barely, barely, do you suppose? Filby ventured a look at Master Mariah. The woman was impossible. Flesh, bone, and angles, a small amount of feminine mystery prowled about the dark her. "'Well, if she weren't so set against him, "'if she weren't so stubborn in resistance to to my thesis, Lord Dickens's—' "'No, no, no, to all my theses. "'If she weren't so dismissive of the value of understanding "'how Charlie Dickens and the ultimate worth of his seduction of the Queen, "'and why he thought he might actually feel sorry for the horrid Master Mariah. "'And—' Well, she had a certain... He sniffed the air next to her, her her clothes, her breath, as they stood in the ever-glooming day. She had a certain scent to her, so she did. "'I expect to voyage more now myself,' she said. "'Now you're... Aye. "'Yes, your absence from the classroom leaves more work for me. "'And Master Master Hillyer, yes, is not as able, perhaps, as once he was. "'She laid her hand on Philby's. "'And I hope that I may count you among my friends, my closest friends.' "'In the near dark of the day, in the dim light of the carriage, "'Mariah's blue lenses mirrored Philby.' "'unto Philby himself. "'My closest colleague, "'and perhaps you would like to know "'what that other matter was, "'the one I was about to raise at King's Calf "'before that fool, aged physician "'began droning on it. "'What could he say? "'Aye,' he said, "'Aye. "'Hold fast,' Hillier called. "'They gripped the rail. "'And that was that. "'They bumbled across another dark trestle.' The first to slip were pigs of lead, sent a moment or two back. The clunks vanished, then, like that. They winked back, chilled, but whole. The work of an instant, and the labour of nearly one hundred kilometres squared of chugging, grinding, growling, and carefully tended machine parts and silver conduit. That was in the year of the Lord Autark, 1859. Larger and still larger loads went farther and farther back, etc., the men of physics work slowly, maddeningly so. After bugs and rats and apes and dogs, eventually a man went voyaging. He returned, chilled and strange. "'Wrap him up!' someone suggested. The next to go went wrapped. he winked back, chilled and strange. A sip or two of brandy and a seat before a good warm fire dispersed the chill. The strangeness, too, soon passed. Travellers finally were sealed in suits of bright iron and plastic. These were called skins. The voyagers returned hale and hearty, but with them came new worries. "'There I was,' one temporal knot reported. "'I plopped down in among a carousal of lawyers, and me, a huge metal thing clanking about, slip-frost dripping, and me trying to find a piss-pot.' Some wondered." The few asked, What of the present? What effect on today was wrought by that passel of drunken lawyers, frighted by that iron man, even if none could report the event with any concord? naughty, as Lord Dickens himself suggested years before, when the machine's potential was still but a notion. Would voyagers so alter the past as to disaccommodate our present? A word some suggested Dickens himself had coined— "'As one backbench Dickensian put the question in Commons, "'Will I be able to buzz back and murk me own dad "'before he gets me and me ma'am? "'The reply came hot from Commoner Collins on the far side. spat Collins, as he was wont to do. "'Another Charles heard from. "'Course you couldn't, you Shrewsbury murk! "'You'd have never been. "'So how could you have made the murderous trip in the first place, "'you daft scribbler? "'Ah, the paradox of it all!' Called senior member Darwin from the back. Well, few heeded Darwin anyway. And this before the machine had gone so much as two rings round Sarum Hill, and King Salisbury was just a nubbling gather of huts and classrooms upon it. All that fuss based on mere expectation of the beast's ability. Figuring it best, no matter the consequences, to not plop down publicly among lawyers, or any one of a previous time, the sciences set to work to do something about that presumptive matter of disaccommodation. Eventually, skins were made that shielded not only the voyager from the poetry of dislocation from one time to another, but to shield the time visited from the traveller. Masking the few hundred kilograms of clumping, mastered, and protective skin from the world round, was a simple matter of adjusting probabilities a task the beast was increasingly capable of performing quickly and flawlessly. The travellers became invisible, silent. The man in the can, or the pilchard in the tin, came later, and Darwin's concerns were deemed addressed. Few paid heed to Darwin anyway. A month, a month of menial things, of tasks so slight from day to impossibly tedious day that Philby could not recall the what, how, or why of them. In times away from work he'd taken to punting. Upon which river? And did he care? He did not. The time spent was pleasant, it was solitary and wet— "'warm, too, and sometimes fragrant with the memory of flowers, "'and sometimes, oh, vile Dave, sometimes he punted with a student, "'an undergraduate, for just another hand, though "'one to aid in portage about the dams "'that once pumped electric fluid to the beast. "'So many dams had remained. "'What a bother they were to a warm, wet, and fragrant afternoon of punting.'" The work at King's was, as it had been before, ascendancy to the mastery had elevated him above it. Once again he aided voyagers, he performed small researches, found directions, determined the weather of the day, what to expect, whom to avoid, and Philby... "'Jerry the Pilchard, tinned and tied, "'sealed within all present probabilities "'and tethered to a travelling master, "'safe at home, heard, smelt, touched and savoured, "'at a distance, as the saying among students went, "'all the voyager's skin could hear, smell, etc. up close. "'And most important, Jerry the Pilchard, "'was the voyaging master's living proof, "'the vital verity of occasion.' as the pilchard services were known in formal terms. Little Dodgson slipped. She wandered at time before, but near Dickens to test her thesis of... um, what it was and when, Philby cared not a whit. He observed and filed. When they met in the calf after in colloquy to coordinate the occasion's verity, Philby's attention drifted. She was intent. His eyes climbed the walls, gazed in wonder at the colours, the lively colours there, the patterns that edged upward with the setting sun. There might have been a view from here, he thought, as little Dodgson chattered on of caterpillars and dodo-birds, of queens and duchesses, distractions to accompany coffee in the late afternoon hush of students, the droning of the master's literary-historical... The now and then exultations of the folk of stench and physics, a view, perhaps, of plane and beast, he thought, as little Dodgson fluttered on. If they had but made some windows clear and wide enough through which to see the world. Ah, but they had not. The windows here were narrow, tall. The glass bore bright-hued images of mammals, fish, and sauropods, beasties real and of imagination. Among it all turned the coiling twins, the ladders of the human spiral curling within itself. Ah, what color, he thought, but Philby would rather have had a view, alas. Dodgson sneezed. Philby nodded agreed, or still sulked, as the case may have been, and amended Master Dodgson's protected recollections with facts recorded, tinned, and verified. Just one nice window, he thought. It is engineers and physics, men and women from the wet and chilly Hibernias who have overseen the building of the beast. These islanders ascertain what structures best protect the engine of its making. They are sure that improvements in the machine elements themselves are integrated into it. Why Hibernians? Well, from time immemorial, they had been voyagers upon the sea— a mere five hundred years after Jesus Josephson, Brendan the Fisher paddled away from the island. Why? Why, well, have naught to do, but pickle fish and fuck damp women, Brendan is reputed to have said. Whether he had said that or not, Brendan was the first to sight the great western continent. Some say that seeking some place, any place warm and dry, he went paddling after the setting sun. Others believed he simply drank himself into a stupor and drifted off. No matter which truth is held, however, the fact remains. Brendan found Great Virginia in little more than a tarred laundry hamper. He returned in a new-built vessel, far more seasoned and technically innovative than his one-man coracle, and brought word home of the lands to the west. This, of course, fired a spate of urgent boat-building among Hibernians. However anxious they may have been to leave their wee wet island, Hibernian folk took to heart what Brendan doubtless learned of sea-going construction from the natives of the western continent. Hibernians have since blended that urge to improve technique with a lust to be somewhere else that is born into all islanders, and have as a consequence alloyed a national imperative to build, and build large, with an urge to get jobs elsewhere. Hibernians thus are highly skilled engineers and excellent travellers. As they learned from the natives of that distant continent, nothing seems to improve a thing like making it larger. Anyway, why build small? Philby rode a horse, a true horse, one of flesh and hair. Horsehair, he thought. He'd hired the thing at King's and rode out among iron stems and silicon petals. Mile on mile the old animal plugged along. The day was sunny and warm at King's, but down among the machines in the hum of numbers it was shaded, cool, almost pleasant. When he reached the river by the outer ring, he stopped. Behind him lay the world, lay all that was important to Philby past, present, and yet to come. He delved his watch and counted time. So many hours to arrive, so much daylight remaining, so many hours to return. And the day he looked around so fine and fair. The land ahead lay open, for now, the fields still under the plough. On them was growing... mm, Growing what, he wondered. He did not know what. He did not know what it was that grew so green and high. That is near the height of the eye of an elephant, he thought. So much of this crop, and yet so near... And yet he knew it not. A shiver ran through him. He felt a shadow pass over him. A bird? An airship? He looked, and. Nothing. But yet. Something. Or mayhap it had been a tremor in the earth. Perhaps the river dam had released a. uh, But no. Or an iron rail had passed per. No, there was no nearby rail. "'Simply the day was bright, and then it wasn't, the ground solid, and then—' "'He blinked, and Master Mariah took his arm. "'Gerald,' she said, "'that drink.' "'He opened his eyes. "'Ahead, at the end of the dark street, the prospect of Wepper Marsh beckoned. "'London, night, dark and smelly. "'A street. "'Something is amiss, Philby thought.' "'She steered him. "'And where, where were the public lights?' "'He wondered.' "'The prospect was crowded. "'The mass of Poloi was musical and noisome. "'The ungowned unknowing, as the students knew them. Well, "'They seemed friendly. "'My roots,' Philby realized. "'The people from whom he had ascended, "'and to which he apparently had now returned.' They bellied their generous guts to the bar or moved bumptiously among one another through the haze and stink of the low-ceiling pub. No seeming purpose other than the urges driven by inner joys, the which an outsider could never fathom, never in a million thoughts, he thought. Like snow and the stillness of the disk, he said aloud. Leading through the smoke and bodies, Master Mariah turned. Uh, nothing, he said. Old memory— But something, he thought, something else. She drew him to a shaded cove at the dark end of the pub. She sat and waited. This will do, she said. He sat. In the close space, he smelled her, her floral fragrance, even above the flesh-right pub. I must to tell you, she said. Ha! Well— he burped. <laughs> didn't we have this conversation once? Oh, oh, I don't know, two months gone. Didn't I hear some other things you must tell me? Then didn't I slip back unskinned at your suggestion, and haven't I paid the price to your benefit? Oh, price paid and the plus to come your way. Hmm? She grabbed his collar as a lady of the house placed drinks on the table without an order being placed. Noriah ignored the woman. I... Used you, Gerald? Yes, I did. You were my testing rat. There, you have it. You like it? She relaxed and took a long pull on the altodoro that had been set before her. He blinked. Like it? No, uh, no, Master Maria. He said. A pint of ale was by his wrist. We have not much time, and I have to tell you, I have rather, rather to convince you. Philby continued to think. Something. My horse. He asked. THE horse, not mine, she's she's, she's a hired horse, a, a horse, all of kings for a horse. "'We are changing time,' she said. <laughs> "'I, you did, I have, others, we all have, we all shall, skinned or not, invisible, intangible, we, all of us, alter something back there, and the results in what we think of as the present have been—' She stopped. "'Disaccommodation,' he whispered. "'Substantial.' "'Yes,' she said. "'Lord Dickens,' ah, she settled her elbows upon the table. "'Dickens, or you, may call it what you will, but we have done it, Philby.' "'She looked for all the world like—like like a master-master,' he thought. "'And—' "'How do you know? "'If if we've been disaccommodated, "'how would we ever know? "'The stream would have reconfigured us, "'all things around us, "'so to the new reality. "'I have tested it,' she said. "'He opened his mouth. "'Before you ask how, "'let me say what it is I believe. "'I believe the very act of returning to a time "'not of our own changes it. "'A simple observation, a peak, so to say. "'Yes.' Observing a thing alters it, irrevocably, alters, she paused for a smile to creep up her cheek. Well, irrevocably, until someone goes farther back and changes it all again, hmm? Philby looked at his drink. It was not a new notion, dare I say. Many a master and Dickens too, no doubt. Dickens did. "'Had something to say on the matter. "'I will say, Philby, despite the rise and fall of the universe, "'you are singular.' "'She grabbed his hands, gripped them with a tenacity that shocked Philby. "'Look about you, Gerald,' she said. "'Look!' "'He pulled his eyes from hers. "'The room was full, the air still, in a grey-blue pungency throughout. "'He coughed. "'Yes, it's a full pub. "'We have been here.' "'Many a time, you and I, sitting here, "'arguing over this and that. "'Though the pub was another name, "'existed in another city, perhaps upon another river at least, "'and these, these are disputations,' "'she consulted a small book she delved from the depths of her purse. "'Well, they consisted back and forth over many subjects,' "'she read to herself. "'Elizabeth, Dickens, others. "'Though none so pressing as this, she looked again at him. "'Time,' she said, and pointed to the shuttered window above them, a flickering light from the street lamp, cut a razor-slash of yellow over them. "'Observe the smoke,' she said. "'We are still our little cove here protected. "'Nothing disturbs the air. "'Yet it moves, the smoke, "'the particles that comprise it. "'They move.' "'They did?' "'Her eyes dropped to the table. "'His look followed. "'Your ale,' she said. "'Look!' "'Inside his nearly clean glass, bits of barrel-sediment danced among invisible currents. "'They gathered turned complex gyres in the stillness. "'Nothing makes that happen. I por si muova, "'And yet it moves.' "'He lifted the glass and drained it. "'Well, now it doesn't. "'My point, Gerald, is—' "'She pinched the bridge of her nose. "'This is so far from my mastery.' "'Literary history! Why are we historians at the top of the academic?' "'She made a noise that could be nothing but a spit. "'The point is, the world is composed of just so many particles.' Yes, yes, he began the cantation of the slip. The beast knows where every part of all things are, and by intuition knows where they've been, and so it may see from whence they came, and yes, 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 and then we slip. But when we slip, no matter how shielded, no matter how invisible we remain in our skins of metal magics, no matter that we make no disturbance perceptible by eye or by instrument, there we are. "'We are there observing, and observing we alter. "'Look, look at the smoke, Gerald,' he did. "'Move any single particle of that,' she passed her hand, "'through the light. "'The cloud-parted smoke eddies roiled, "'followed her hand her arm. "'There,' she said, "'I have changed history.' A thousand years from where we sit, an empire will fall, or a man may choose a different cravat, and who knows what will lead from that. An incalculable change has been wrought to forever by my small hand bumping a few whiffs of here and now. Filby squinted at the horrible Mariah. That's what you believe, then, is it, what I know, Gerald?' "'and here is how I determined it. "'Several weeks ago, before you convinced me to—' "'Yes, yes, before that—' "'Philby sulked. "'Several weeks ago I went back to Elizabeth's era. "'Elizabeth the harlot's time. "'The virgin—' Virgin Harlot wise Bessie or best the Tudor fool Libby the butcher Philip Strumpet she has been them all in the mind of the polloi, in poems factual and records historical and in my various theses she has been them earned them all at a time last week a month ago i don't know my thesis was that she was a virgin, or so I think now. Never, you never did. You said, Philby shouted, his shout rising into the light and smoke. No one paid heed. Two academics arguing. That she was a virgin, and that her ploys with various pressing men at various critical times opened up whatever it was, it is of little matter now, because now it's all different, all, all changed, changed utterly. Well, Nearly. "'The virgin decider,' you called her, Philby sulked. "'Philby, you task me. "'Perhaps another time, another name. "'But my point is, she was all of those things. "'Your Dickens' his declaration, he did it for "'because he loved Her Majesty. "'True love, and for no other reason. "'He always—oh, always. Oh, always there is no always, Philby. "'All is conditional. "'Last week, before Wells's trip, it—he— was something else, not a member, just a boot-black boy who rose to love a queen. Or was it that he was declaring, showing madness to break a contract with some one or another, and I know it will not be part of your memory, but hear me out, I was there. I heard, I saw him declare for the queen. Oh, that was love, true love. His declaration, Master Mariah, laid her small booklet upon the scored and beery wood of the table. She opened it to the last page. Four words were written upon it. "'She covered them before he could read. "'The continent to the west of our island,' she said. "'What is it called?' "'What?' he shook his head. "'Vascovia?' she blinked. "'Yes,' she drew out the word slowly "'as she looked at the last scribble upon the page. "'Yes.' "'Vascovia,' she shook her head. "'That name, I know it was something else, "'something else when I wrote it.' "'What are you on about, Master Mariah?' he said. "'These other words Amerigonia, Brendonia, Southland—all are names by which that great, globe-striding continent had been known. By you, by me, by Hylia, by all the world, and kings too.' She leaned closer and spoke to his eyes. "'And only within the last month or two, she paused again. Again her head shook. "'This is too confusing. I know—' I wrote another word when I put it down. That fourth name was Something Else. It was that Something Else when I retrieved this book from Ockham's Garden. Wells, Little Dodgson. Someone was returning to 1460-something for some reason doubtless important. I'm sure they— She smiled at Philby, who stared at her, his mouth agape. I am certain they disaccommodated the stream. That's Puchyland! She shouted the final word. Land is, was, the name by which you knew that continent as recently as last night, if last night itself has any meaning. Now, why should I know that? She drained her glass. Understanding the mechanism of temporal disaccommodation should not give me immunity from changes wrought a whole world round. Well, well, is it just the world, or is it the galaxy, perhaps— "'The universe entirely,' she waved to summon drink. "'Woman—oh, woman,' she called, then. "'Oh, Philby, see, the point is,' she smiled prettily as the woman brought another dark sherry and a tall, swirling ale for Philby. "'See,' she whispered, "'the point, Philby, is, and I'm beginning only now to see it all. "'The point is that time then, time now, and time yet to be, is an illusion.' "'It's a slippery thing, is time, a cloud, upon a windy day, "'now a wind-ship, now a bounding coney. "'See? Sweat stood out on her forehead, "'beads of moisture gathered on her upper lip. "'Fiction,' he said. "'He picked up the book, read the four words upon the final page. "'You wrote?' he asked. "'She nodded. Four different times. "'I have no idea what I may have written originally, "'but that is what remains.' I took the book to Oakham's garden. Why there? She smiled through the sherry. Poetic license, I suppose, Ockham. The beginning of it all by Hillia's reckoning. That and the fact that no one ever goes back that far. Myself accepted. And "'Accident!' she smiled the word. "'I buried this thing by his pear-tree, the very spot where gravitation begins. "'This is a small history of what was at the time I voyaged.' (laughs) "'She giggled as she flipped the pages. "'No, it's a history that never was, or rather was once and now no longer is, "'left in a place as temporarily remote as I could safely go.' She leaned closer, discretion, utterly unnecessary in the noise and smoke of the pub. Rossetti, that sweet man was my pilchard you fool, I said, I said for the record, Rossetti, you fool, you've sent me somewhere. I have no idea where that I said to him, from Ockham's time. I oerrit his senses with my anger, then I dropped the book there, so it lay by that famous tree. She smiled. I retrieved at a later time, another accident and another fool. Music began in a far corner of the pub, the sweet, sad concert between Octorette and accordion, accompanied by a high, thin voice, a voice filled with whiskey and smoke that remembered distant lands and dusty women. "'You ride rough over people, Master Mary Maria,' Philby said. "'Yes, yes,' she said, "'poor Rosetti.' All the pilchards, poor they. I altered the controls to slip me back to Arkham. Whoop! An accident. His, theirs, or... So they thought. And so I kept hush over it all. Their accidents and kindly, Master Maria, neither peached nor disabused them of their notions. You ride rough, Philby said again. I tell you this, Philby. I want you. You, as a partner, not a dupe. Together we can research this question he looked again at the smoke still it swirled her hand was still
2: they go part 2 in the can larry you are doing a fantastic job and please everyone out there Tell Go over to Larry's site and tell him you like the story. Tell him you don't like the story. Tell him bits what happened, move for you. He wants to know what's going on. He hasn't had an email yet, I don't think. So please pop over to Larry's site. Link on the front of the website. Tell him if you like it. Tell him if you hate the thing. He wants to know. Now the reason all this... Starship Sova's month of December fundraising is for one person only, and that's Jeannie Robinson. And I've got Spider just to put a few words down, just to let her know how, how she is. Spider.
6: Well, I've been completely flabbergasted today. I never expected anything like this. Hello, Tony, and all the current occupants of the comfortable Starship Sofa. That was Robert A. Heinlein, and this is Spider Robinson checking in from Bowen Island, British Columbia, with a brief update on the health of my best friend and companion of 35 years, Jeannie Robinson. Many of you will have heard by now that last February Jeannie was diagnosed with biliary cancer. It's quite rare, and cases of remission from it are almost unheard of. On the other hand, not many people Jeannie's age have either had that kind of cancer or the extensive and brilliantly creative surgery she was given for it by Dr. Andrzej Bushkowski at Vancouver General Hospital. So it's accurate to say there really are no valid statistics that apply to her because she is a statistical universe with only a single inhabitant. For that reason, and at Jeannie's wise insistence, we have both made a conscious decision to proceed with our lives as though this is a nuisance that will one day pass. In the meantime, her therapy is going about as well as could be hoped. Radiation doesn't help her kind of cancer. The first two chemo drugs they tried on her had disastrous results. We won't even discuss how bad the side effects were. The real bad news was they caused her blood platelets to plunge so low, I was afraid to turn on the TV for fear a moment's accidental exposure to Fox News could give her a stroke. And worse, while the platelets were dropping, the cancer markers in her blood kept rising like the American national debt. But finally, her genius oncologist Dr. Charlene Gill found a drug, capecitabine, which has brought her blood platelets back up to near normal and has produced a dramatic drop in her cancer markers from the 7,000s to the low 2,000s. As if that weren't good enough, this one only makes her mildly nauseous for only a day or two of each cycle and doesn't mess with her energy level, as opposed to the constant want-to-die nausea and exhaustion the others were so good at producing.
4: Told you George had secret weapon. Secret weapon? What was it, George? Dumb
6: luck. So we are now in a golden interim period in which she still has enough strength to do the work of three as usual and has no nausea or hair loss or exhaustion to cope with. This is good because it gives her the time and energy both to try a few of the non-conventional therapies that look promising and to make some serious progress toward completing the screenplay for the Stardance movie, which she's in the midst of creating with her partner Jim Spasto, and their new hired laser cannon David Gerald, author of Wonders from the Trouble with Tribbles to the Martian Child. See www.stardancemovie.com for details. We know this golden respite cannot last, but we approach these happy hours with extra attention and reverence and deep gratitude. Check out the video of Jeannie dancing on stage at a recent benefit concert for her, which can be found at either her blog, http stardancemovie.blogspot.com or at my own website, spiderrobinson.com. I can't tell you how much we've been helped by the generosity of fandom already. Without the generous assistance, I'd be living on the street right now, typing this on a library computer. It's not the direct medical care. Canada is a civilized nation with universal health care. It's all the bloody extras that the system doesn't cover. The meds needed to endure the chemo, for instance. The greatly circumscribed and expensive diet Jeannie now needs to live without a gallbladder and three-quarters of her liver and her common bile duct. Traveling costs to and from the chemo, etc., etc., etc. I won't go into them all. I'll just say that the old saying turns out to be incorrect. Comedy is easy. And, of course, my income has crashed because every time I sit down to write, all I can see are carcinoma cells dividing and growing. My next novel, Orphan Stars, the first of three sequels to Variable Star, is probably going to be late, which will make covering the mortgage just a bit tricky. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. We can still use all the help we can get, is what I'm trying to say. Jan Schroeder has taken a temporary hiatus from auctioning SF items for us on eBay, but will be returning to it very soon. Among other things, she'll be auctioning my own personal reading copies of the existing 12 volumes of North Atlantic Books' superb hardcover edition of the complete short works of Theodore Sturgeon. I just got a full replacement set as a contributor to Volume 12, edited by Ted's daughter, Noel Sturgeon, and I don't have room to store two sets in this small cottage. So keep your eyes peeled for stage two of the Jan Schroeder auction, and in the meantime, links for PayPal contributions are available at both Genie's blog and my website's homepage. My thanks to Tony for allowing me this chance to give you the latest news, and my thanks to the universe for making it such happy news.
2: There you go, Spider Robinson, sir, thank you so much. That's why we're doing it, do you know what I mean? So please... There's no other reason I'm asking for two pound ninety nine off all of yours. So everyone, please pop over to Starshipsova.com, leave a donation. Until next week and the final Lord Dickens part three. I would just like to say good night from
3: me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal?
4: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... ...Starship Sofa, a procedure issued. Shuttle set for launch.
6: Airlock will be opened in three, two...